Well, friends, we're, uh, we're working through the, a new series called Asking for a Friend. Um, if you were here a couple months ago, you might remember when we had people from, all, from the congregation, you submitted all sorts of questions. We frankly received more questions than we could possibly answer. Uh, questions about everything, from about, who, about God, about the church, about life. You know, what, is it, what is it that we're longing to know about? And so we've done our best to sort of uh, you know, consolidate many of those questions into a, ver- into a various theme. And today we're taking a look at questions around the nature of you know, who God is. Why did God uh, do certain things? Why did he create us? Um, what does it mean for us to sort of engage in God in, in, in prayer, et cetera, et cetera. We're going to be taking some of those questions. Now, this morning, I just need your forgiveness for something, okay? So this morning, we're trying to do something a little different where I'm sitting down here, and I'm on a chair, and for those of you who know me, it is going to be really hard for me to not start moving around and walking back and forth. So I'm going to do my best to, to hang tight and use this table for a chance for us to just have a good conversation. Um, but if you see me kind of fidgeting a little bit, you know why. It's because I don't know how to stay still at some time. So as we kind of work for, through this, uh, bear with me. All right, friends? Um, now, with that being said, let's take a look at one the first question that we're going to take a look at this morning. Uh, somebody submitted this question, a fascinating question. They asked this. They said, does Jesus ever get sick of hearing from me? Does Jesus ever get sick of hearing from me? Now, there's a very simple answer to this question, but then we're going to unpack it a little bit. The simple answer to this question is this. No. No, Jesus never gets sick of hearing from you. God never gets sick of hearing from you. Now, I imagine some of you might be thinking, well, I get sick of hearing from myself. Or maybe you fear that there's other people in your life that get sick of you contacting them. Or maybe you can think of somebody in your life that you are just sick of them contacting you, right? But, but notice, we must never assume or project our own human experiences that we have onto God. And so when it comes to the feelings that we might have towards others, no, God does not have those same types of feelings of getting sick from us. Remember, the God we love and serve is an infinite God. He is a God beyond any human comprehension. And this God who is infinite, who is beyond any concept of who we are that we will struggle to fully understand is a God of love and a God of grace, a God full of compassion, a God of mercy, a God who made you and me intentionally and purposefully. You know, I, I think of sometimes, you know, for, the, for each and every one of us, you know, each of every, any, every one of us were born. But when, when we were born, you know, our parents were not deciding when you were in the womb what your personality was going to be like. They were wondering, what's this kid going to act like whenever they were born, right? And then you were born and then you know, took it away from there. But God was making decisions about who you were going to be like, creating you within your mother's womb. Why would the God who intentionally made you with purpose and and love and compassion grow sick of hearing from you? During Jesus' ministry, you know, there were some people who wondered whether or not God was a good God and whether God would respond whenever, the God, you know, whenever his people responded to him. And Jesus told this story. It comes from Luke 18. He told this story about a woman, and maybe some of you know this story, about a woman who is going to court day after day to complain to a judge. Okay? And it's, it's, it's a, called a parable. It's a story that Jesus told. And in this story, he says that this judge is a really bad person, okay? He's not a good guy. He's a corrupt judge, if you will. And, but in this story, this woman keeps going back 
back and uh, coming back to this judge time after time, day after day, asking for help. You know, do this, please. Do this, please. And eventually, the judge grants her request. And you know why he does it in this story? He does it because he's so sick of her coming to him. He just wants to be rid of her. And so he eventually just says, fine, I'm going to do what you want, right? And then Jesus challenges the people. He challenges us, and he challenges the people listening to that first time he told that story. And he says, is God like that judge? Is God the kind of God who just tolerates us, occasionally answering our prayers because he's so frustrated and annoyed by us? He just wants us to be done with, so that's the reason he'll answer us our prayers. And Jesus emphatically says, no. That is not the God that we serve. We, create, we serve a God who made us, knows us, loves us, and who longs to hear from us. How much more does the God desperately want us to come to him day after day, time after time, coming to talk with him and, love and be with him? The God we see in Jesus is a God bursting with compassion, bursting with love, bursting with patience. It's a God who longs for his kids to come and be in relationship with him. And in fact, we see throughout the scriptures God encouraging us to please come to me, talk with me, regularly engage in relationship with me. It says in, in uh, Jesus says this in Matthew. He says, Matthew 7, he says, Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock, the door will be open to you. For everyone who asks, receives. The one who seeks, finds. The one who knocks, the door will be opened. And he continues then in verses 9 to 11. He says, which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for fish, will give him a snake? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven good gifts, good, give good gifts to those who ask him, right? And then it says later on in the scriptures, in First Thess Thessalonians, it, it says to pray continually. Here we have God telling us, I want you to come to me constantly. Why would the God who asks us to constantly and continually pray get sick of us continually praying? Right? So no. God, Jesus does never get sick of hearing from us. And in fact, you know, the reason why any of this is even true, the reason why God never gets sick of hearing from us is, is because of this. It's a truth that many of us learn when we're kids. Jesus loves us. And this next question is kind of connected to this, you know, whenever we go to God in prayer, we, some of us might wonder this question. The, question. the next question that was submitted was this. Does God ever change his mind? And you know, it's connected to the topic of prayer because, because some of us, we might find ourselves wondering, well, if God never changes his mind, what's the point in praying? And others of, us, others of us, we might point out, we say, well, if God does change his mind, does that mean that if certain things, or if we don't pray, that certain things won't ever happen, right? And to be honest, you know, there's this, uh, it's a bit of a mystery to this here, but there, there are some really fascinating places in the Bible that talk about this topic. You know, first of all, um, there's this fascinating line from the prophet Samuel in the Old Testament, where he's in, he's in the middle of this conversation with the king of Israel at the time, and Samuel drops this in his conversation, right? He just kind of drops it in like, oh, by the way, don't, don't forget this. He says, he who is the glory of Israel does not lie or change his mind, for he is not a human being. That he should change his mind, right? So, it, interestingly, we, we get this from the Old Testament, that this God is not like you and I. When, in the way that we change his mind, God's not like that. God does not change his mind in the same way that we do. Similarly, in the New Testament, the author of Hebrews, he's writing about Jesus. And when he's writing about Jesus, he says this statement. He says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today 
and forever. Right? This statement of consistency that who he was from eternity past, he will also be in eternity future, right? Which then kind of leads us to wondering, okay, well, what's up with prayer? And, and then the truth is, as I said, there's, a, there's an element of mystery here. But I think we can say, based on what we see throughout the scriptures, that if we were to, you know, if that question that we ask, if, it's a, if we're looking for a yes or no answer to that question, the answer is more no. God does not change his mind. But he doesn't change his mind in the same way that you and I think of changing minds. You know, um, a couple weeks ago, our son Elliot, so we, we had pancakes for, for breakfast, and a couple weeks ago, Elliot declared that he no longer likes syrup on top of his pancakes. Um, the week before, he liked syrup on his pancakes, right? So we don't, know, we don't know what to expect whenever we have pancakes, whether it's a syrup or a non-syrup. He just decides to change his mind from week to week. Um, God is not like an indecisive toddler who can't decide whether or not he lends syrup on his pancakes, okay? That's not the kind of God that we, that we serve. Rather, when, we're, when we think about God changing his mind, we ought to be imagining it this way. God does not change his mind based on God's will, for his world and for the universe that he's created. God commits to receiving our prayers when our prayers are according to his will. Now, I'll explain this in a second, but, but think, sort of think of it like this. If, if I am going to drive to Pittsburgh, okay, then it's my will to go to Pittsburgh. Now, there might be other people in the car who are there with me, and they might make requests to me that are either in, in accordance with my will to go to Pittsburgh or not in accordance with my will. So they might make a request of me and they say, hey, instead of going this way, can we go this roundabout way? Or can we go all the way around this direction? Or can we go through the tunnel? Or can we avoid the, the tunnel and go through this? Um, and I could theoretically say yes to any of those requests because those requests are still in accordance with the grand scheme of, the, of, of my will, of getting to Pittsburgh. Other people, though, might make requests that are in completely opposition to that will. They might say, I don't want to go to Pittsburgh. Let's go to Philadelphia instead. I hear it's better there, right? Or they might even make requests that make no sense in relation to what it is that we're trying to accomplish. And in those sense, those, there might be times where, where the answer to that re request is, no, that is not in accordance with my will. So I, I think similarly, you know, we can kind of imagine that God, God's will is something that when it comes to prayer, the goal is not to try to get God to conform to our will. The goal is for us in prayer to submit to whatever God's will might be. So the goal is not to change God's mind. The goal is to align our minds with God's mind, align our will with God's will. Uh, I don't, this isn't, we don't have a slide for this, but you know, there's a pr famous prayer where Jesus prays in the Garden of Gethsemane, not my will, but thy will be done, right? In, some, in a sense, that's the goal of prayer, is to get to this place of being completely conformed to the will of God. Uh, and when that happens, we become the kind of people who naturally pray the prayers that God wants us to pray, Right? The more we grow to become more like Jesus, the more we pray the prayers that Jesus wants us to pray in the first place. Um, now, so in, that being said, the real question might actually be this. Rather than does God change his mind, the real question might be, do you change yours? <laughs> do you change your mind in your relationship with, with God? Because... Frankly, as followers of Jesus, like Jesus who is, you know, is unchanging from beginning to end, it's essential that our minds are the ones that are conformed to who God is and what he longs for us. 
Paul wrote, writes this in Romans 12 too. He says, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but, but what? Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then, what happens when you, once your mind has been fully transformed by, by, the, by the Holy Spirit? You will be able to attest and approve what God's will is. We become the kind of people who are then able to discern God's will and our prayers become in line in accordance with that. So no, God does not change his mind in the same way that we fallen, broken, sinful human beings change our minds. We are called instead to submit our minds to God and allow our minds to be conformed to his. Our next question is a bit of a, a, bit of a shift here. Why did God create earth and people? Now, this is a fun question. You know, you, you could theoretically, philosophers could teach an entire semester class on this one question. Why did God create? Perhaps one of the greatest philosophical and theological questions of all time. Why in the world did God create in the first place? Instead, you know, you know as opposed to God just sort of hanging out in existence and just deciding to be God, he instead chose to create, to actually bring things into existence. Why did God do that? Now, another caution here. Because God is infinite and we are not, our minds are never going to be able to fully comprehend and grasp some of these questions. The, the simple truth is, if we were able to fully comprehend God, then God would not be God. We would be. <laughs> so there are some aspects where we can't fully answer this question. But so a, a reminder is you know, something the prophet Isaiah says. He says this in 50, Isaiah 55. He says, as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. Right? We remind ourselves that many of the questions that we ask, the answers that we provide are not always going to be fully satisfactory in the sense of, we are not infinite, the same way that God is. But here's the first thing to realize. God did not create humans because he needed to. There wasn't some, you know, desperate need or longing that said, oh, you know, God just desperately has to create, so he creates human beings. That wasn't the case. God does not need anything, okay? God is not dependent on anything. He's not in need of anything from us. The Apostle Paul, he actually says this once in Acts 17. The Apostle Paul is preaching a sermon, and he says this. He says, The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands, and he's not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Right? God is not the kind of God that is just in need of things from us human beings. God doesn't need us. He doesn't need companionship. He doesn't need us. God's always been fully and completely and utterly independent of anything that we can have and offer or exist. You know, in fact, um, God doesn't even need our companionship. He's been in full relationship through what we understand from Christians as the doctrine of the Trinity long before the world was created, long before earth, long before humans, long before the stars, the sky, long before that, God was in perfect relationship with with within the Godhead himself. This is known as the doctrine of the Trinity. And if you want me to explain the doctrine of the Trinity, you'll have to ask another question and wait for the sermon series some other time because it's a complicated answer. But we even see hints of God's complete and utter independence within himself at the very beginning of the Bible. The very beginning of Genesis, we, hear, we see these hints of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit within relationship with one another. Opening lines of the entire Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was full and empty. The darkness was over the surface of the deep. And then what? The Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Here we see the, the Godhead, the Father, working through creation and the Spirit of God at work within it. Uh, later on in chapter 1, verse 26, God says, Let us 
make mankind in our image, in our likeness. Do you, do you, do you notice the plurals there? Right. Where, the, where do those come from? The plurals. You know, many theologians have pointed out that this is the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, communicating within itself as to the goal of creation, right? So God has always been in relationship with one another. There's no need for us. So our God is a God of relationship. We know that. So why, if God didn't need us, why then, why then he, did he create? Why did he create people? Why did he create the earth? Well, the answer is that it's not a question of need. It's a question of want. God wanted to create. As an act of his very loving essence, God knew that love meant to create a group of people who he would want to be in relationship with. Take a look at Colossians 1.16. Paul writes this, In him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. Do you see that last phrase, and for him? This idea that creation was a part of God's desire for creation to be with him. We were created for, to be in, in, a, in a sense, for God's pleasure. Now that doesn't mean entertainment. It's not that God created us so that he could step back and be like, <laughs> look what you guys are doing. But rather, it's this sense of this deep longing companionship that God wanted us to exist and wanted to be in relationship with us. It's not something God had to do, but it's something God chose to do. And as a result, that is why we serve a God who is constantly pursuing us in the best sense of the word, who longs to be in relationship with us, who, when we go astray, when we find ourselves lost, when we find ourselves outside of God's will, when we're doing things that, that within our heart of hearts, we just kind of know this is not the way the world is supposed to be, we serve a God who longs to make things right and seeks us out so that we can be in relationship with him. You know, in the Gospels, Jesus tells this uh, a series of stories about how God is like, a, 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 and you'll see each one of these, who, who God is, is like someone who seeks out those who are lost. Why? Because he wants to be with us. This is all from Luke 15. And in Luke 15, 4, he says, you know, hey, if you have a hundred sheep and you lose one of them, doesn't, doesn't the shepherd leave the 99 and go after the one that is lost? God's just like that. He says later on in that same chapter, he uses another metaphor. He says, if a woman has ten silver coins and loses one of them, doesn't she light a lamp, sweep the house, and search until she finds it? Like God is like that. When, when we find ourselves lost, God seeks us until he finds us. And lastly, perhaps the most famous one, some of you know that uh, it says, you know, while, a, while the disobedient son, this is from the story of the prodigal son, while the disobedient son was still in the, dis, in the distance, his father saw him filled with compassion, ran to his son, embraced him, and kissed him. You know, Jesus says God is like that, the kind of God who will constantly chase after us out of love and compassion. So why did he create us? Because he loves us. He created us because he's a God of love. And longs to be in relationship with us. Now, our final question for this morning is another big one. But this question is, is um, you know, a question that we certainly do not have enough time to really capture all aspects of this question today. But it's simply this. How do we know that the Bible is true? And as I said, this is, so, this is a question that is powerful and deep and we don't have enough time to truly 
dive into it head first, but we're going to try to, I'm just going to try to scratch the surface a little bit for us to kind of understand a little bit more about, you know, what, what is it that we can actually, you know, find a sense of reliability from the Bible that we use. So, you know, as you probably have noticed, in every, ver- every sermon that we preach at Chartered Oak Church, we reference the Bible, right? The, the Bible is ultimately the authority and the basis of our faith. And um, you can actually see, this is what we, we at Chartered Oak Church, this is what we believe about the Bible. We have this posted on our website. I want you to see what it, what it says in full. So it says, the Bible is God's word to us. It was written by human authors under the supernatural guidance of the Holy Spirit. It is the supreme source of truth for Christian beliefs and living. Because it is inspired by God, it is the truth without error. Now, you know, I could, we could preach a sermon on every sentence of this, of this passage. As I said, this is a deep, complex co- concept. But this is, one of the, this is what we have as a statement as to what we believe about the Bible. Now, why do we believe this? Okay, We're going to take, take a bit of a journey together. Ready? First of all, one of the reasons we believe this is because this is in some, this, we, we see in the Bible it testifying to its own identity within it itself. Two people who wrote letters that are in the Bible, we find talking about Scripture in a very similar manner. First of all, the Apostle Peter, the, the Peter who followed Jesus, he writes this in one of his letters. Um, but know this, first of all, no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but moved by the Holy Spirit. Okay? So, it's an, so Scripture is something that the Holy Spirit is using and, and functioning behind. Secondly, the Apostle Paul wrote a letter to his protege, Timothy, and he says this about Scripture. He says, All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. Okay? So these are two places that in the Bible itself, we see it trying to explain why it is that it's reliable and why it's true. But, but if you're somebody who's a bit skeptical of the Bible or skeptical of faith, you should be immediately putting your hand up and saying, uh-uh, nope, that's called, that's called a circular argument. You can't use the Bible to prove the Bible. Right? If you're a lawyer, you're like, this is nothing. This would be thrown out of court, right? So why is it then that we're able to say that, we, that the Bible is true if, you know, if we're not able to, if we were not going to use the Bible itself to try to testify to its validity? Okay, so here's, and as I said, this is deep, so stay with me. Um, first of all, we got to know what the Bible is. The Bible is not just one book written by one person in one certain uh, one, a specific point in time. That's one of the things that does actually separate Christianity from a variety of other religions. You know, some other religions, some of their authoritative books, the, the argument is that uh, it was received, you know, just kind of dropped down from heaven, or one individual, one man just wrote everything on this piece of paper in a certain pe- period of time. The Bible's not like that. The Bible is this collection of 66 books written by all kinds of different people over the course of 2,000 years, Okay. It's this huge collection of incredible various books of all different types of genres communicating all sorts of amazing things of the same story. God's interaction with human beings, God's attempt to save and rescue the world. Now this diversity of thought, this diversity of experience and of time, and yet all of it is contributing to this same grand narrative, is in some ways an argument. It's to say, look at how this variety of authors from across 2,000 years' worth of time are all writing something, and it's all a part of the same grand story. And so it's, in a sense, like, look, it's all connected, this incredible, this line of thought. And so if that's not true, 
then the Bible is either a grand conspiracy of people over 2,000 years working together to try to make sure that it all fits together, or it's just a grand delusion where we're all just seeing things that aren't actually there. And yet, so many things that we see in the Bible are absolutely phenomenal, incredible, the way that they connect itself to one another. It's fantastic. It's supernatural. And, and, and through that grand story that the Bible claims, there's this one, you could argue, the you know, essential of essential claims that the Bible makes. And that claim is, God himself came to earth in the person of Jesus Christ. Fully God and fully human. God himself came to earth in the person of Jesus Christ and offered himself as the perfect atoning sacrifice for our sins. Those of us who grew up in perhaps more liturgical traditions, we said it this way. The Bible's grand statement as to what the world is about is simply this. Christ died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. Now, because of that, you could say that so much of the truth of the Bible hinges on the truth of Jesus. And so we can actually step back and we can say, if the stories of Jesus find are valid and true, then that story about Jesus, if it is true, we can then kind of build from there evidence of the validity for all of the other aspects of the Bible that are all pointing to Jesus. And so if just for a second, we're just going to focus on the four books in the Bible that, that are, tell us about the stories of Jesus. They're known as the Gospels, okay? The first four books of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. These are eyewitness accounts of the life of Jesus. And the point is, if these eyewitness accounts of the life of Jesus are real historical accounts, then there's a good reason to believe that the rest of the story of the Bible that these books are then testifying to can also be argued that there's validity to them. That there really is a God who exists. That there really is a God, and this God is love. That there really is a God, and this God has revealed himself into, in Jesus. But if the, the stories that the gospel tells, if, if they are rather false, made-up stories, well, then it's true. Yeah, we can just all go home. There's nothing to it. It's pointless. So can we... I missed the point. Within the Gospels, there's even this like core event. And the event that the, all of the Gospels are leading up to is this, the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so if we can disprove the death and the resurrection of Jesus, then we can all just leave. But if we can see valid, reasonable arguments that there, are, there is something to this story of the death and the resurrection of Jesus, then that in and of itself is testifying that there is something about the, the, this message that the Bible is saying that we can trust. Now, interestingly, when the New Testament was written, the New Testament was constantly testifying to the death and resurrection of Jesus. The Roman Empire was trying to squelch this story, trying to get rid of this story of Jesus. They thought it was ridiculous. But even they could not squelch the story of the gospel of Jesus. And furthermore, when we look at some of the lives of the earliest disciples, they constantly had every opportunity to recant and to say, it's all made up. I'm just making this stuff up. You know, they, it would have been perfectly reasonable for them to say, yes, I agree. Dead people don't come back to life. But instead, they stuck to their story, even under point of death. And so, again, like, there's no good reason why somebody would continue to say, yes, this is all just a made-up hoax, but I'm gonna, and I'm going to die for it. But they continue to say, there's something to this story that we believe in confidently, even in the face of torture and death. 
leading many to say that historically so many of these early disciples knew that what they were trying to proclaim in their heart of hearts was not a lie. That the cause that they were proclaiming was something so much deeper than just trying to make up some story so that everyone can just kind of, so that they could sort of, you know, spread this big hoax across the, 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 uh, the ancient world. Some of the disciples even made statements like this. In Philippians 1, Paul says, For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. That is such a strange statement to make if you don't actually believe in the accounts that the Gospels are, are declaring. And so, so many of the early church, the earliest Christians, they became martyrs for the faith. They became so committed to, to proclaiming this message that it has led so many historians to come back and say, why would, why would the church even get started in the first place? If the testimony of the Gospels is not true, where would this motivation come from for these disciples to go constantly after the fact that they believe it? So many of the people who rule out the events that the Gospels are telling, are telling about are doing so before they've even heard the evidence for, the, for, for those events. And so with all that being said, you know, many times people have said, when it comes to trying to prove history, it's very, very difficult to prove you, you can, we can bring all kinds of good evidence that says this is all pointing to the fact that it is more likely than not that these things are true. But at the end of the day, we have to make a decision whether or not we choose to put our trust in those accounts. And so no earthly evidence is going to convince us that it is 100% without a doubt that Jesus walked out of the grave. But there is an enormous amount of evidence that can point us to the fact that the things that the Bible testifies to are in fact probable. But at the end of the day, we as Christians are called to believe by faith. And so I end with this statement that the Apostle Paul wrote in Ephesians 2.8. It's by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you and we praise you and we ask that you would continue to fill our hearts with a willingness to love and serve you. Remind us how much you love us. Remind us every day that you are there, and may you help us to grow more and more to become like you in all aspects of our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.